Welcome to Sibyline Podcasts, part of our Insight series, where we aim to provide relevant, timely, and actionable analysis in discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe, and share. Hello, and welcome to another Sibyline podcast in our Insight series. Uh, today, I am your host, uh, Bendik Manzin, the lead Sub-Saharan Africa analyst. And joining me is Ahmed Alkot, our lead Middle East and North Africa analyst, and Anastasia Chisholm, and our Middle East and North Africa analyst. Today, we'll be discussing the United Nations Climate Conference in Egypt in 2022, or otherwise known as the COP27 conference in Sharm el-Sheikh. And right off the bat, uh, Ahmed, could you please you know, give us an, an overview of the event, you know, where it's taking place, and you know, what is the broader you know, domestic and international context around this? Sure. Thank you, Ben, for hosting us today to talk about this important issue. So the COP27 conference will take place on the 6th of next month and will complete on the 18th of November. It will basically be hosting a group of international organizations and representative government officials to talk about the climate change and how can we address the ongoing crisis. The, the, the location where the event is taking place is in Sinai, in the southern part of it. So it is relatively safer than in the northern part, where there has been known to have, would have military operations trying to combat ISIS presence in that, in that area. The reason why domestically Egypt is really interested in this event and sees this as a very critical moment for it for itself is that because it really wants to become an international hub for such events. They want to be more attractive to other kind of organization and other international conferences. You know, historically, Beirut and Amman would be more a safer options for a lot of these international gatherings. But, you know, given the instability in these places and the drive in the Egyptian government to make Egypt a more stronger country internationally, this event is, is trying to demonstrate to the world that Egypt has the infrastructure, has the capability, and has the legal and the operational framework for people to have uh, interesting events that go smoothly without disruption, or with at least minimum uh, disruption. The second thing that domestically Egypt is really eyeing on this event is they really want to improve their image. You know, as you know, since Sisi took power, uh, he's been seen as a human rights abuser. He's not really uh, compliant with the rule of law. Uh, there has been a lot of discussions in, in, in different uh, Western governments about imposing sanctions on, uh, on Egypt for their human rights record and their violations of it. So for the Egyptian state, Today, it's important to show uh, an image that the country has progressed uh, a little bit outside of the dark, darker times when the country was more unstable. It has the issue with the Muslim Brotherhood. It has other issues with other opposition groups that were causing the state to, to feel a bit more vulnerable internationally. And now Sisi would like to project power by saying, look, we are a better country at this point. We are able, we are capable. Our infrastructure is now uh, an inter in, uh, on international standards. Please trust us more. Please trust my government more. And I think that's really the ultimate uh, kind of message that Egypt really wishes to send to the international community taking part in this particular event. 
Additionally, as well, Egypt is really keen on uh, announcing new green investments and green initiatives. And I think the event taking place on its territories is going to facilitate that. It's going to make international also able to see by the eye what Egypt is doing in that direction and how it can evolve as a green investment uh, destination for the region and for the world. So Egypt will definitely try to capitalize on that. However, you know, despite all these kind of like uh, positive kind of things that the state in Egypt is pursuing through hosting this event, they are likely to face some issues, especially with domestic arrest, as calls for protests have already taken place by international, by Egyptians living in the diaspora and other local forces that want to use the opportunity to voice their opposition to the government in Egypt. We already saw calls for like a million people march uh, situation and the the organizers and the callers for these protests would like people to go to where this event is taking place. So if this ever happens, which is unlikely because the state would likely enforce quite a strong uh, security posture, this will cause a, quite a, a scene for the government and be very embarrassing if it ever takes place. So we expect that the government will try early on to curtail these events. And we already saw that the government is, you know, enhancing some social security network systems. They are already releasing some opposition leaders and some opposition figures. They are trying to talk about more societal reconciliation lately. So the government is really aware about the intensity of the situation and the credibility of the social and risk risk. But again, in that line, they are already doing quite a significant amount of effort to try to curtail uh, uh, any chance uh, of unrest, but it remains to be seen how this will work out. Internationally, uh, the international community uh, is mainly today busy with the war on Ukraine. They are trying to see who will basically be able to carry the cost of the war. Uh, Russia refused to hold the co- uh, the cost, obviously, and other international, uh, other governments as well don't wish to hold the cost. And I think what is going to happen in COP27 is an extension of previous kind of conversations about who carries the cost of the problems related to climate change. But on top of that, today we have the problem of lack of international cohesion around how to approach the situation, given the energy crisis, given the food crisis, and how these things can be handled in a collaborative manner, which proves to be harder than it already used to be. So it remains to be seen how this event will conclude. It's really inter- it's a really international event, really exciting for the Egyptian uh, investments and businesses and people interested in Egypt as a business destination. It's a really a great opportunity for them to see the country and how it evolved since uh, CC has taken power. But it, as again, as mentioned earlier, it remains to be seen how domestically the populace, uh, the population of Egypt will deal with the worsening economic situation and whether that will lead to uh, a form of unrest. Thank you, Ayad, for that really comprehensive overview. A lot to pick out there, obviously, particularly when we're thinking about Egypt trying to use this event to project its power and then, of course, how it may respond to that, that prospect of domestic unrest, given its own kind of internal you know, internal opposition to the government and CC in particular. Obviously mentioned earlier that, you know, this is happening in the south of the Sinai Peninsula, and so the, the threats that emanate from terrorist groups in the north are somewhat reduced. But Annie, I, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit more about, you know, what are those key risks, particularly relating to security threats in, around the event? Yeah, of course. So we've already touched on this a bit, but broadly speaking, the two primary security risks or threats that we foresee relate to domestic unrest and terrorism. 
As for the former, so recent reports indicate planned nationwide protests likely to take place on 11th of November, right in the middle of COP27 proceedings, with the logic essentially being that the Egyptian government will have its hands tied as it looks to avoid harsh measures to quell protests uh, and therefore the consequent international condemnation. With regards to the summit itself, Sharm el-Sheikh's hosting is likely to increase its exposure to protest activity. However, large-scale domestic unrest remains relatively less likely due to the particularly strong state security posture in the city. Now, as for terrorism, Sharm el-Sheikh is less vulnerable to terrorist attacks than cities in North Sinai, which does remain the epicentre of terrorist activity by Daesh-affiliated groups in Egypt, as Ahmed mentioned, though Sharm el-Sheikh and more broadly the South Sinai's proximity to the North Sinai will increase the relative threat of attacks on both military and civilian targets. Particularly, you know, during this significant international conference uh, with threats likely to focus on hotels, accommodations, transport routes and hubs and the uh, Sharm el-Sheikh International Convention Centre venue itself. And we can see this kind of threat emerging via the approval of the extension of additional security measures in some areas of the Sinai Peninsula, primarily in the North Sinai on the 1st of October, which will maintain measures to counter the threat of militant activity and terrorist attacks through COP27, roughly through the next six months as well. Interesting. So aside from these sort of hard security responses that the, the state is, is addressing, what are authorities doing to prepare for you know, the influx of visitors um, to Sharm el-Sheikh? No, of course. Well, authorities have poured investment into Sharm el-Sheikh ahead of the conference, essentially reviving the resort city after a significant decrease in revenues during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, upgrades to infrastructure include the Sharm el-Sheikh International Airport, to which uh, Dental CC has issued directives for the operation of two runways at the same time instead of the usual one. This is pretty standard for international airports, but coupled with the establishment of an additional airport hall, this will support efforts to more efficiently welcome and process arrivals ahead of, during and in the days following the summit. However, minor delays are still likely. The Egyptian government is also facing the challenge of organising not only transport for attendees, but also environmentally friendly transport amid heightened uh, scrutiny by these environmentalist groups. So measures taken include setting up electric buses to transport event participants and then implementing border strategies, including you know, bicycle hire schemes, for example. It is worth noting that there has been an ongoing issue over the cost of accommodation with the Egyptian tourism ministry imposing a minimum price for hotel rooms. This kind of led to hotels charging up to 10 times the usual cost for this accommodation, prompting activist groups, particularly among groups from non-Western regions, including sub-Saharan Africa, to voice concerns over the inclusivity of the conference. And in recent weeks, the Egyptian government has responded to this lobbying and has negotiated a price cap for two-star hotels that announced cheaper accommodation, for example. Thank you for that, Annie. Just turning back to you, Ahmed, I'm, I'm wondering, aside from these sort of hard security risks, uh, obviously there's been some mention of, of activist pressure and obviously, you know, given the human rights record of the Egyptian government, there may be some reputational issues with regard to going to the conference. You know, what would you say are the primary risks for businesses and personnel visiting Sharm el-Sheikh during the COP27 period? Sure. So reputational risk is quite high in this instance. You know, as you know, there is already a lot of eye on the Egyptian state. Even the US government has withheld some of its the annual aid to Egypt because of its record, because of its lack of compliance with some of the 
the quest that they were made to release some of the human rights activists or to become a more, more lenient on opposition, generally speaking, in the country. So reputational damage for businesses or for individuals associated with events remain relatively high. However, it is unlikely that because of the nature of the event, because of the nature of the issues that we will cover with it, this to be particularly a severe issue for lots of businesses and individuals engaged with the event, especially if they don't you know, express any affiliation to the system or have any direct business links. So overall, while the reputational risk damage is, is there, it's unlikely though for it to materialize in a significant situation, given the nature of the situation. It's a short-term one. The, the kind of engagements also in it is slightly different. Other kind of uh, risk that uh, might be experienced by personnel taking part, for instance, we have the LGBTQI plus community. They are unlikely to face any criticism from the state at least not harsh ones, because the state, as mentioned earlier, is trying to project a positive image of its security apparatus, of its operation, you know, and uh, therefore they are unlikely to do something really harsh. Uh, however, the, the culture and the, the, the society in Egypt might not be as welcoming as you shouldn't be, and uh, there's likely to be some verbal abuses or even some more physical harassments. But insofar, the, the participants are... In the, in the southern part of Sinai, in the Sharm el-Sheikh, they are likely to be safer than, say, if they go to bigger cities where there is less, con less control and uh, you know, different kind of people are on the streets. There is also a, a higher risk of petty crime, so people trying to steal something from participants. There is also a, a risk of kidnapping. It's not very high at this point, but given the proximity of the venue, to the northern Sinai where, you know, things has happened in the past and foreigners were abducted and uh, you know, ransoms were asked. For this particular occasion, that doesn't seem to be a, a, a high risk and it's unlikely that the state will let something like that happen, even if, you know, somebody attempts it, the state will be heavily involved to try to prevent that from ha happening. We have also accessibility issues. So generally speaking, the venue of the uh, conference, where the conference will be held, will be uh, accessibility enabled. However, However, the overall kind of infrastructure in Egypt isn't necessarily prepared for this. So those who are traveling to Egypt with accessibility concerns need to be cautious that they might need additional uh, effort to uh, you know, make their commute or to move around uh, different cities. And lastly, we have the social unrest threat. Uh, this can cause disruptions to movement. This can cause also security risk for uh, uh, attendees who happen to be near some of those activities. However, uh, as mentioned earlier, the Egyptian state is unlikely to allow protesters to go further towards the venue and towards the event, and uh, demonstrations are likely to take place mostly in the designated area so that they remain under the state control and surveillance, um, and thus reducing any likelihood of disruptions for uh, participants. Thank you for that, uh, Ahmed. Just wondering, actually, obviously talking a bit about activists and movement disruption there, Annie, I wonder if you could comment a bit more about, you know, what what the government is planning on doing to mitigate the impact activists may have around the event, and also, you know, what are what are what are the primary concerns among these rights groups and activists about the event? You know, what's driving this action? Of course, well, as already uh, alluded to, we've seen reports of activist concerns over inclusivity, accommodation costs, and of course, the actual wider issues, which are the Egyptian government's human rights track record and how this will play out during the course of the conference. Now, this comes on top of the usual focus on environmental and climate issues, with these groups seeing human rights and climate action as actually coming side by side. So ahead of and during the conference itself, we expect to see 
reports of obstructive measures taken by Egyptian authorities to prevent human and civil rights activists in particular from entering the country or attending the event, including via visa refusals, enhanced state surveillance of individuals, disrupting access to private meeting rooms, and delaying the granting of event passes to activists, particularly from uh, non-Western regions. Now, it's likely that Egyptian authorities will also request access to the belongings, social media accounts, phones, or laptops of select activists and individuals on the alleged grounds of national security. In particular, activist groups have expressed opposition to the Egyptian government's plan to establish these specially designated protest zones uh, at the COP27 Blue Zone over a period of three days. Recent reports also suggest that uh, pavilion events planned for Monday the 7th of November will only be permitted to run if they involve visiting heads of state, which has heightened uh, concerns among NGOs that the government is looking to repress debate and civil society activities. And these zones will represent effectively the only space in which activists are officially permitted to demonstrate. And going further than that, these reports indicate that the Egyptian government is likely to use state-affiliated NGOs to make it appear as if genuine protest is taking place, while actual opposition activists will not be permitted to hold demonstrations over politically sensitive issues, uh, arguably the most significant issues even. And um, activists who do engage in unsanctioned protests, uh, despite strong deterrence, will face the threat of detention, though we have to say they are unlikely to experience the harshest of crowd dispersal methods, for example, uh, with security forces likely to show some restraint. Interesting. Thank you very much. I'm wondering, because obviously we've mentioned significant investment into uh, preparing the venue, significant investment in terms of deter- deterring unrest, terrorism, uh, crime, you know, obviously this is going to cost a huge amount of both, you know, physical capital and then I suppose a degree of political capital as well. You know, how will Egyptian, the Egyptian government's handling of uh, COP27 impact its broader objectives? Well, as Ahmed mentioned, uh, the event serves a broad purpose of establishing Egypt as a reliable hosting country for even the largest of international conferences and summits, uh, whilst also leveraging the summit to attract uh, international cross-sectoral investment in Egypt, particularly uh, in sustainable or climate-focused initiatives. Now, with this in mind, the Egyptian government's handling and management of COP27, particularly how it deals with uh, activism and protests, will generate reputational risks for private industry in the form of largely on-trend condemnation uh, by activist groups. If reports of significant human rights violations at the summit or related to the summit, emerge or potentially go viral online. Um, Social media posts and campaigns are likely to target Western governments and businesses engaged in partnerships with the Egyptian authorities uh, and UN climate change. But these brand image risks uh, will be mitigated by their relatively indirect associations with the Egyptian government. Perhaps it may be worth noting that an environment of uh, intense scrutiny against the Egyptian government is reasonably likely to deter some prospective foreign partner companies from engaging in these, uh, you know, really highly publicized deals with Egyptian authorities and businesses in the coming weeks and months uh, after the summit. But this is particularly likely if their shareholders and consumers are strongly aligned with ESG values, for instance. Interesting. Thank you so much for that, Annie. And I, I want to thank you, both you and, uh, and Ahmed for your uh, comprehensive discussion uh, today about of COP27, really, really fascinating. And I'm sure we'll be following fallouts from that conference and what is decided there for many months to come. And hopefully we'll revisit this topic at some point in the future. Now joining me, Edie Lipton, our Sub-Saharan Africa analyst, to discuss 
uh, events coming up in the next couple of weeks that may be drivers for unrest or um, or major security concerns as well as um, in the political sphere. So Edie, could you please uh, enlighten us, please? This week, we have Pakistan's ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan set to launch his Long March protests on the 28th of October. Khan has said that protesters will not enter the red zone, but authorities will likely crack down on demonstrators stationed elsewhere around Islamabad, raising threats to bystanders with disruption to transport and logistics also highly likely. In Brazil, we have the second round runoff presidential election on the 30th of October. There are concerns around fraud allegations by incumbent President Bolsonaro as he has not projected to win the second round ballot. Domestic unrest and political violence are likely in the run to and during the election day. In the Middle East, the Israeli elections on the 1st of November are unlikely to present a solution to the political impasse. There is a realistic possibility that results will fail to produce a Knesset majority, which will prolong the government formation process and increase policy risks in the coming months. In Lebanon, President Michel Aoun's term is set to expire on the 31st of October. Lawmakers are unlikely to elect an incumbent before this date amid persistent divisions. This will threaten to generate a political vacuum, increasing policy and government's risks in the coming months. And finally, in Europe, UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is expected to announce the economic plan for the country on the 17th of November. It is likely that the plan will outline how the government can close the budget gap. Market stability will almost certainly be impacted by the announcement, with the government expected to pursue tax hikes and spending cuts. Thank you very much for that, Edie. And thank you all to, for listening to our podcast today. Um, for further information, please contact info at That is info at uh, We look forward to having you with us for our next podcast in the Insight series and wish you a very pleasant rest of your day.